Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, let's kick off tonight as we uh, go through our fourth and final hot-button theology topic Uh, Back in May, we started with our discussion on the charismatic or sign gifts, uh, mainly tongues and prophecy. And then uh, we talked about uh, predestination and election. And then in our last, the third study, we talked about the end times, the rapture, the millennium. And you're going to see some overlap between our discussion on the uh, millennium and the rapture and the end times with our discussion tonight. So I'll make sure you understand, you see where those overlaps are, but these two coincide together. In fact, at first I thought I could do the end times and Israel and the church in one study, but that would have been just stupid. We, we couldn't do it. We barely got through the end times, so now we're, tonight we're going to separate this out and talk about Israel and the church. And the primary question, in case you're wondering, maybe this doesn't make any sense to you what the difference is or what the conversation is, the primary question is this. How do God's promises to Israel relate to his work through Jesus Christ and the New Testament church? So most of us who have been in church for any amount of time know God made promises to Israel. We're going to talk about what some of those promises are. We're familiar with the the biblical notion of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the modern nation state of Israel. And so we know all this stuff... And the question is, how does it fit together? What do those promises still have to do with Israel today? And what do they have to do with the church? So those are the questions we're going to dive into tonight. And those are the areas where Christians often disagree. I would take a wager that we probably disagree in this room on some of these issues. So let's, let's jump in. Here are the main ideas in question. Number one, Israel. The people of God, as they are identified in the Old Testament, referring namely to national, or what we might call ethnic Israel, but also the righteous, faithful remnant of obedient Jews. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament concept of Israel, there's really kind of two primary ideas. There's the race, the nation, the ethnic Jews, and then there are what the, the New Testament will come to call it true Israel, the remnant that was faithful. So even when you read through the prophets, uh, Joel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they talk about God's coming judgment, there is this sort of insinuation that those who do not believe and obey Yahweh are not really Israel. They might be nationally and racially Jews and part of the nation in that way, but they are not true Israel who is faithful and obedient to God. So even in the Old Testament, there's this distinction between the nation, racial, ethnic Israel, Jews, and true Israel, which is faithful and obedient, this faithful 
remnant. But that's just an overall uh, definition. When we say Israel, this is what we're talking about. Okay? The next concept from the question is the church. Who is the church? Well, the church is the people of God as they are identified in the New Testament. Referring to those who are made part of the body of Christ by faith, regardless of nationality or race. So we have two concepts, two themes, and maybe on the surface it looks like there are two peoples. And we're going to see tonight through our study that there is some who think these are two different peoples. And then there is another view of, uh, of thinking that thinks that, no, this is just one people, Israel and or the church. And that's where the disagreement falls. We all agree that God has made promises to Israel. We disagree about the nature of Israel and the promises. So anyone who's familiar with the Bible can read the promises God makes to Israel, God makes to Abraham, God makes to Moses, to the people, to the kings, to David. Whoever it is, we see those promises, we know those promises, and we all agree that they're there, God made them, God will keep them. Okay, they mean something. The disagreement we have as Christians is who the Bible means by the name Israel. What does that have to do with the church? And how do these promises flesh out in God's timetable into the end times? So tonight we're going to look at two primary positions. Are we talking about one people? Are we talking about two peoples? There are two primary positions on the nature of Israel and the promises God has made to Israel. There are two primary positions on the nature of Israel and the promises God has made to Israel. The first we're going to discuss is dispensationalism. Now, this is a phrase we used in our last study on the end times, and so you're going to see some overlap here. This is where that discussion about the end times, you'll see that in a minute, overlaps with this idea of who Israel is and who the church is. The main concept behind dispensationalism is this. God has two distinct peoples, Israel and the church. Now, if you just take away one thing tonight, that, that, that should be it. That's where the disagreement is. Dispensationalism claims God has two distinct peoples, Israel and the church. So all the disagreement and all the conversation that we're going to talk about tonight really deals with this question. One people or two? Israel and the church, Israel and or the church. Okay? Dispensationalism says there's distinctly two people. Just a little review from our talk in the end times discussion. Uh, dispensationalism gained popularity in the 19th century via uh, two, two main primary actors. John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield. And uh, we talked about these guys in the end times discussion. Uh, Darby, uh, English Anglican uh, pastor, and uh, Schofield, who made this popular through his Schofield chain reference Bible, uh, they were really some of the major proponents early on that made this popular. It wasn't invented in the 19th century. 
but it gained popularity in large part to Darby's preaching and Schofield's study Bible, which was the first time people had a Bible with notes in it that explained things this way. There are two peoples, Israel and the church, and it gained popularity. Um, and I would dare to say that this is probably the most prominent view among Amer American evangelicals, dispensationalism. Uh, all the words in that phrase are important. It's the most prominent view. It's not the only view. And if you did a survey of evangelicals, that is conservative, Bible-believing, we believe the Bible is inerrant, the Word of God, that's evangelical. If you did a survey of evangelicals across the globe, you would probably find a lot more diversity on this topic than you do in America, especially in the American South. In the American South, this is really the only way of thinking. There are two peoples, Israel and the church, and there's a lot of stuff packed into that that we'll unpack in a minute. But uh, I would just venture to say that it's the prominent view among American evangelicals. Even within dispensationalism, though, there are different varieties of dispensationalism. And just to name a few, because there are countless, I think, uh, progressive dispensationalism, which sort of tries to bridge the, the gap between this view and other views, progressive dispensationalism. And classical dispensationalism, which is kind of what we're going to what we're going to talk about tonight, classical dispensationalism, kind of where we're going to land on uh, this topic. Primary tenet of dispensationalism is that God deals with humanity through different programs in redemptive history. God deals with humanity through different programs in redemptive history. Uh, that word programs, you might use the word administrations, uh, but all of that's just another word for what we mean by dispensations. You say, what in the world does dispensationalism mean? Well, it means that God operates in history through dispensations. And what we mean by that is that there are different ways that God has operated and worked through human history with different people groups over the course of time. There are countless ways that even dispensationalists divide up these dispensations. But just remember the, the two big ones, Israel and the law, the church and grace, okay? The two kind of primary big picture things. And there's lots more. There's people who say there are seven dispensations or two dispensations or three or four or five, or however many uh, that people divided up into. But just see them as different programs and uh, how God has operated through human history and redemption. So according to that definition then, there are, well, it's double. Israel and the church are two separate administrations, two separate dispensations, two separate programs. And they are not to be confused according to dispensationalism. They might overlap. And yes, Jesus and the New Testament church show the fullness of what that, that was. But still, there is Israel, Hardline, and the church. Two separate, two distinct peoples in God's plan. Two different programs completely. Two different administrations in redemptive history. 
and we're not supposed to mix those two uh, according to dispensationalism. So uh, just on face value, if you're comfortable raising your hand, how many say, that's what I have typically heard and that is what I generally think? Only four of you? Maybe my, maybe my thought about the, the prominent view amongst American evangelicals is, is, is not right. I think I, th- I would just wager to say just turning on Christian television, Christian radio, the concepts that we hear out of popular preachers, that this would be the, uh, the, the dominant view. If it's not for you, that's great. We're going to talk about some other options. The other option is what we call covenantalism. And you can see that the root word of that is covenant covenant. But as opposed to dispensationalism, which sees two distinct peoples, Israel, hardline, and the church, covenantalism says, no, there are not two peoples. There is just one people, uh, and we can just call it the church, or what the Bible calls true Israel. And then there would be a little nuance in what they mean by the word Israel. Okay, well, we're, we're going to use the word church, and we'll talk about that a little later. Some form of this view, whether it was called covenant theology or not, some form of this view was the dominant view for most of church history. Probably not until the 1800s do we see a rise due to Darby, Schofield, and the rise of dispensationalism. Not until then do we really see the rise of anything else. So all the way back to Augustine and the church fathers, um, there is... This, this kind of view, that the church has either replaced Israel or the church is the fulfillment of Israel. But not really until the 19th century do you have this concept that, no, there are two groups, two programs, two, uh, two different ways that God is operating. This was the primary view for most of church history until the 1800s. What we call Reformed churches codified this view in their creeds and confessions. So, reformed from the Protestant Reformation. So, around the 15 and 1600s, these Protestant churches who were forming and splitting off of the Roman Catholic Church, whether they're Lutheran churches or the Reformed churches in in, uh, the Dutch Reformed churches or the Anglican churches or Baptist churches in, in Britain, you read the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was kind of the founding Presbyterian creed and confession. No matter which Protestant Reformed creed you're dealing with, Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, they all fall under this this umbrella of covenantal, the covenantal view of Israel and the church. So even our Baptist forebears, our Baptist forefathers would have said, there's one people, it's the church, and then they would have worked that out in different ways. Uh, But what had kind of been largely held by the church for a long time was kind of put into words through those reformational creeds and confessions. Uh, Just like dispensationalism, there are different varieties of covenantalism. Uh, There's new covenant theology that, again, is kind of a hybrid between a dispensationalism and hardcore covenant theology that you'd find in in Presbyterian churches, let's say. Uh, New covenant theology really deals more with the law 
and that uh, how, how do we apply the Old Testament law to us today? New Covenant theology says the Old Testament law is gone, it's done away with, and it's been kind of renewed and replaced by what they call the law of Christ. A lot of overlap there, according to New Covenant theologians, but it's two completely different things. And so it deals more with the law, but it hits on a lot of this Israel and church distinction. And, and just like progressive dispensationalism, there's progressive uh, the covenant theology. And I'm, I'm interested to think, I don't know if, which one I want to put on the right and the left, but if we have progressive dispensationalism that's kind of trying to bridge the gap towards covenant theology, and then you have progressive covenant theology, I, I wonder if they're progressing that way or this way. But I think both groups are attempting to bridge the gap between the two. So I would say progressive dispensationalism is trying to bridge the gap towards covenant theology, and progressive covenantalism is bridging that gap towards dispensationalism. And again, there's all kinds of varieties even besides those. So uh, this is a very broad, um, high overview of these things. God reveals his plan for humanity under different covenants. Where did my handout go? Oh, I have it on my computer, but I like my paper copy. Uh, according to covenantalism, God reveals his plan for humanity under different covenants. Watch this distinction, but not different programs. Dispensationalism said what? Different programs, different administrations, different orders in how God relates to us in redemptive history. Covenant theology says, no, it's not about different programs. There's only one program, God's one people, God's one plan, God's one redemptive story. There's only one program, but it unfolds in different covenants, different agreements that God reveals and makes with humans. So think about uh, what most covenant theologians would call the covenant of works that we see in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve are given a covenant of works if you obey you will live. If you disobey, you will die. And of course, that covenant was broken. Well, then God makes a covenant with Abraham. Most covenant theologians, classical ones, would say that's what we call the covenant of grace. Flows all the way through Christ. Uh, but there's all these different covenants up under that. The Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so God is unfolding his work with humanity through these different covenants. And though it might seem like things are changing, it is really just the further unfolding and developing of God's one plan of redemption in Christ. So, do you see that distinction? Dispensationalists say different programs, different orders, different administrations. Covenant theology says no, one program, one order, one thing, but it's unfolding in these various covenants that God reveals in His Word. So before we unpack these two a little more, I do want to make this uh, caveat, and I think it's important. As with any system of thought, there are extremes on both sides. We could have, you know, go back to the supernatural sign gifts and speaking in tongues and prophecy, and, and we could say the same thing. We see extremes on both sides. Those who abuse those gifts and misuse them, and in my opinion, those who discount the gifts altogether. Or we could look at predestination and election, and we could see those who abuse the idea of free will to say that God has no control over anything. 
We could go to the opposite side on the Calvinist side and say we see people who abuse the doctrine of sovereignty and just say, well, I'm not going to evangelize. I'm not going to tell people about Jesus because God's already ordered everything and what will be will be. So no matter what doctrine we're talking about, you've got to watch out for these extremes. With this particular conversation, there's a couple of things I want to make mention of. One is free grace theology. Free grace theology would be an extreme form of dispensationalism. You can just write these under that last line. There's no blanks for these. If you want to write it, you don't. That's fine. This would be an extreme form of dispensationalism. So follow, follow the thinking here. If God has two peoples, Israel and the church, and he has two different ways of operating with Israel and the church, there are some in dispensationalism who say people in the Old Covenant, Jews, were saved by the law. And we in the church are saved by grace. Okay, now, Not all dispensationalists believe that. Some do. And here's where the argument goes. So because we're saved by grace through faith in the New Covenant, obedience to God, they won't say it this way, but it's what they mean. Obedience to God doesn't matter. Uh, everybody familiar with John MacArthur? Generally... Uh, he wrote a book in the 80s called The Gospel According to Jesus. And the point of this was that, and I know this just sounds like duh, but there was a controversy. The point of the book was that Jesus requires, there goes my hand out, Jesus requires repentance for salvation. That the gospel is repent and believe. Believe it or not, there were people who disagreed with that. That the gospel is not repent and believe but only believe. And what they meant by that was, listen, even if you just confess Jesus once as Savior, you're saved. No matter what the rest of your life looks like, no matter if you proceed in holiness, no matter if you pro progress in sanctification, no matter if you bear fruit, if you've called on Jesus, you're saved. MacArthur said, and the Bible, I think, says no, there, there's going to be growth in holiness. There's going to be growth in Christ-likeness. If what you experienced with Jesus by faith alone, if that was real, you're going to grow in that. You might falter. You might fail. Absolutely. But you're going to grow in it. This group said, no, grace is completely, absolutely free. And what they meant by that was, your works don't matter at all. Not even as evidence of true salvation. And so a guy named Charles Ryrie, uh, Zane Hodges, uh, guys at Dallas Theological Seminary, kind of went back and forth with MacArthur over this. It became known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Does Jesus have to be Lord, or can he just be your Savior? And MacArthur said Jesus has to be both, or he's neither. And these guys said, no, Jesus can be your Savior, and then maybe later your Lord. And so this whole, this whole disagreement, and really, at the foundation of it was this conversation. Two different systems, two different orders. This was about the law and obedience. This is completely about grace, apart from works altogether. Okay? Uh, another one I would say, and this is the only name I could give to it, inclusivism. And I, I don't know if there's an actual name for this view, but this would be an extreme on the side of dispensationalism too. John Hagee, 
familiar with him, Houston, uh, Houston Mega Church, Cornerstone Church. Uh, he is an advocate of <laughs> some form of inclusivism. Uh, and what I mean by inclusivism in this, in this rate is, Hagee believes that the Jews are separate from the church, dispensationalist, okay, you see the foundation there, and that God has promised to save every single Jew. And he's so extreme in this view that at least in the past he has advocated that we don't even need to evangelize Jewish people. They do not need to be converted to Christ now because God has promised that, I guess, in the millennium, when Christ returns on the white horse, all of the Jews will receive Jesus as their Savior. So this, you see, it's, it's a very extreme view of dispensationalism that is so separate and so distinct, these people don't even need the gospel. They're going to embrace Jesus anyway. So that's a very dangerous, uh, extreme view of dispensationalism. On the other side, uh, an extreme view of, um, and, and, and this is not like where covenant theology leads, but it has arisen from this, and that's these various forms of anti-Semitism or uh, anti-racial hatred and bigotry towards Jewish people. And, you know, quite honestly, in the church's past, whether we're talking about Martin Luther or the German state church at the time of World War II, I mean, a, a lot of this anti-Semitism that we've seen in church history comes from this belief that God is done with Israel, he's done with the Jews, and the church has replaced her. God is done with them, turned his back on them, he hates them, and that he pouring his, he's pouring his judgment out on them, that's why they don't believe, and so now it's the time of the Gentiles. And you see how very quickly, if you carry that to an extreme, you can see that perverted into forms of anti-Semitism uh, against the Jewish people in general. So watch out for the extremes. No matter what theology we're talking about, extremes are bad. Okay? I'm not really a centrist. I don't, I don't know how, how to say this. I'm not a centrist or some sort of moderate, but it's just a good way to think about theology that if you ever see two extreme sides pulling at one another violently, the safe place to be is probably somewhere between them. The Bible is full of this healthy tension, whether it's free will and sovereignty, Israel and the church, the spiritual gifts and the revelation according to Scripture. No matter what it is, there's always this healthy tension. The best place to be, as uncomfortable as it is sometimes, is right there in the middle of the tension. Okay? And I, no matter what doctrine we're talking about, it just seems to be that that's the case. Um, so our question tonight is, will God's promises to Israel, specifically the land and the kingdom, be literally fulfilled at some point in the future, or are they fulfilled in the person and work of Christ and through the church? Okay, so dispensationalism says, yep, God has two peoples, Israel is one of them, and he has a future plan for the nation, people, ethnicity, race of Jews. Covenant theology says, no, that's not true. God has only one people, and what we see in Israel has been fulfilled through Christ and the church. 
Okay, so all this boils down to one big promise, and I think you'll know it. God's promise to Abraham. And this is what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. To the land, there's one promise that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. There's another promise. And I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a promise of a land, and it's the promise of a people. I will give you a land. I will make you a nation. Agreed? We agree that God made these promises to his people. So underneath that promise of the land and the people, let's see how that unfolds in redemptive history as we go through the Old Testament. When God promises them to be a people, we realize that through Jacob. Abraham, and the child of promise was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Israel, um, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's name in Genesis 32 was changed to Israel. Why? Because he contended or wrestled with God. Remember, God shows up, wrestles with him, breaks his hip, changes his name from Jacob or the trickster to Israel, which means one who contends with God. So there's the manifestation of the people. It's going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through Isaac. And now we see it's going to come through Jacob, his sons, Joseph's two sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation, the people are manifested there as part of that promise. The promise of the land then is realized through the exodus and the conquest. Jacob and his sons go to Egypt because of the famine, right? Joseph saves their lives, feeds them, they're there. They flourish there in the land of Goshen. Remember, up until there arises a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, he enslaves the Hebrews. They're there for 400 years. Moses is sent to deliver them and bring them where? To the promised land. Back to the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land of your fathers. The land that I promised you. That's what the Exodus is all about. And then we come into Joshua and Judges. And we see the conquest of that land. Because now it's been settled by all these pagan Philistines and Canaanites and everybody else. They have to go in under Joshua and then the judges and eradicate those pagan people and those pagan nations. What? To take back their land. This is our land that God gave our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all these scripture references you can look up. I only mentioned two. Deuteronomy 18, 9, 26.1. They both say the same thing. God says, when I bring you into the land that I promised your fathers. When I bring you into the land. You see, God, through the Exodus, through Moses, is bringing them to not just a land, but the land. The land I promised your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These promises are further realized in the establishment of the kingdom. 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see Saul anointed as the first king of Israel. And so all of the various tribes and their various lands are united at last. Now, not just under these kind of disparate judges and um, kind of warlords, but now they're united under one king and one kingdom, the actual kingdom 
of Israel. So all of this is, we, we see that the promises of God he made to Abraham unfolding. There's the land, there's the people, and now we have a kingdom. Furthermore, and this will be the clincher, depending on how you interpret this, all of these promises are given to the people forever. Genesis 13, 15, I have given you this land, Abraham, I've given you this land forever. The youth are watching the sandlot tonight. And I remembered that forever. Every time I say the word forever, I think that if you don't know it, forgive me. He's given them the land forever. He's promised them to be a people forever. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what does he promise King David? I will establish your throne forever. And so, depending on which side you're coming at this from, and I think one side leans more heavily on that word forever in a literal way, the dispensationalist side, they say, well, it says forever. That land is those people's, that national ethnic race, it is their land forever. It is their kingdom forever. And there's supposed to be a throne there for them forever. Okay, so that, that's key, that word forever. And this, of course, proves to be the main area of disagreement. How are we to interpret these promises? So let's talk about these two camps and how they interpret that promise as quickly as we can, and I hope this makes some sense to you. Dispensationalists favor a literal reading of the promises. So when the Bible talks about the land, it means the land. The land will ultimately be returned to national Israel and to all ethnic Jews. A scripture reference, Ezekiel 26, 28, that I will, I will restore you to the land. I will bring you back to the land. You ever watch TV late at night and you see the uh, Fellowship of Christians and Jews or the, the, the guy with the trying to get all the, the Jews back to the Holy Land, and, and you're, he wants to, he's raising money to send poor Jews in Russia and Europe. He's raising money to send them back to Israel. Now, that's, that, this is in view with that, to, to get these people, racial, national, ethnic Jews, get them back to that land, the nation of Israel. And, of course, the beginnings of this we know in our modern era, 1948, the reformation of the nation of Israel after World War II. Understand that for centuries, uh, there was no nation of Israel. There were the people of Israel, there were Jews, but, I mean, since the medieval times, they had been scattered everywhere. I mean, since the, really the, the conquering of Jerusalem in Rome in A.D. 70, they had just been everywhere. They had no home, no nation, no place. And then in 1948, partly because of the tragedy of the Holocaust, the United Nations says what? Here is Israel. They draw it on the map. There it is. And, and the nation, seemingly out of nowhere, this nation state with borders is actually born. 1948, there's the nation of Israel. This will continue, according to dispensationalists, not just in the reformation of the actual nation of Israel, but this will continue with the rebuilding of the temple and a throne in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 37, 20, that God's sanctuary 
will be over all the peoples. And again, if you're reading that literally, there will be a temple restored in Jerusalem that will be the center of worship in the world. So what's happened? Why is there no temple now? Why is there no uh, temple on the Temple Mount, no priesthood, no prophets, no sacrifices? Uh, why are we having to have a restoration of the nation of Israel? Why did they have to be reformed as the nation of Israel? Well, because God in His plan, according to dispensationalism, has temporarily blinded Israel to her Messiah Jesus until when? Well, until the church age is over. According to Romans chapter 11, verse 25, um, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, partial blindness, a darkness, has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So if you're reading this from that dispensationalist lens, God's first program, Israel, is put on hold because of the rejection of Jesus, their Messiah. He's blinded them to that. And what's going on now? Well, we're in the age, the dispensation of the church. And God is now working through this new covenant people, the church. And that age of the Gentiles, as Paul calls it, the time of the Gentiles, will come to an end. When will it come to an end? Well, at the rapture. You see how the end times and this, this subject kind of overlap. According to dispensationalism, the church must get out of the way so that God can resume His work with ethnic Israel. So the time of the Gentiles will come to an end. The church age will be over. They're caught up, raptured into heaven. And then during the tribulation, there will be this return of God's work to His people Israel. As Paul says in 11.26, Romans 11.26, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. When the time of the Gentiles is done, God will return to His work with the Israelites, and according to Paul, whatever this means, they will all be saved. Going back to our discussion on the end times with the rapture in view, this will culminate in the millennial kingdom. Go back and listen to the end times discussion if you want some definition on that. This will culminate in the millennial kingdom, which will be centered in Jerusalem. When God promises to bring a Messiah, his servant, through the prophet Isaiah, he says he will reign on the throne of his father David forever. And there's that forever again, on the throne, king in Jerusalem, actual Jerusalem, actual throne King will sit on it, Jesus, forever. And I had not heard this till I was here, but there's also some dispensationalists that, that um, they have this distinction between David and Jesus, that, that there will be a resurrected King David who will reign on that throne, and Jesus will reign on his throne in heaven. So even there you see some variance in the way dispensationalists uh, view um, the end times and the nation of Israel and the church. Okay, let's get through the covenantal thing, and then I mean, we might have time for some questions before I move into the last part. Covenantalists, as opposed to a literal reading of the promises, they favor a spiritual, and I have to put this in there, but real. Okay, but 
someone says they believe in a spiritual interpretation of these promises, it can sound to some like, well, you don't believe the Word of God. You don't take it literally. Uh, literal is different from real. Uh, people who hold the covenant theology take the promises really and truly and understand that God made them and God will keep them. And it's not some sort of way of explaining them away. It's just a difference on how He will keep them and what God was pointing to in the end. So let, let's break that down a little bit. According to covenant theology, though originally physical and literal, the promises point to something bigger. Yes, God did give His people a land, and He did establish an actual nation of people, and He did establish a kingdom. But no matter what picture we're talking about, whether it was the priesthood, the prophets, the kingdom, the covenants, the land, whatever it was, covenant theologians say it was real, it was physical for a time because it was pointing forward to something bigger, something greater, and something better. So in this way, you can see how this all kind of delineates from that. The nation of Israel was what we call a type of God's people. It wasn't God's only people or God's eternal people. It was a type that has now been fully realized in the church. We're going to come back to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9-10 through in a moment, but you, there's that reference for you. So the nation of Israel was real, God did it, it was God's promise, but it was pointing forward to something better than itself. It was pointing forward, namely, to the church. In the same way, when God promises them a land, He gave them a land, an actual land, a physical land, but even that was pointing forward to something better and something greater. Uh, what was that? Well, it's the worldwide church of God, the whole family of God in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the new creation. The new creation. And just a little cursory reading of Hebrews 11.10, you, you kind of see a mention of this. You know, Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. One of the things it talks about is Abraham and our fathers looking for a city... You want to sing Vestal Goodman's song right now, don't you? Looking for a city. They're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, a city made without hands. It's interesting that, that, that it says Abraham and our fathers were looking for a land, they were looking for a city, but it wasn't a physical earthly land or city. They were looking forward to a city and a land that was made by God and not by men. So pointing, something, pointing forward to something greater. Did anybody even know what I was talking about when I said looking for a city and Vestal Goodman? Anybody? Jessica? <laughs> yeah. All right. Go YouTube Vestal Goodman and looking for a city and come back and tell me how, how blessed you are. Hmm? Vestal? You know it's Vestal Goodman. All right. What? <laughs> I digress. Uh, the land foreshadowed in the worldwide uh, church, the new creation. So uh, when we come to the kingdom, the physical trappings of the kingdom, whether it was Saul, David, Solomon, and so on, they point to the reign of God's one king, Jesus. And Revelation 19 and 16, of course, calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, not many dispensationalists would have an, an issue there 
But it, it's just another, it's just really another facet of those physical, tangible promises that we, that we kind of see according to covenant theology, if, if they're right, that we see is uh, pointing forward to something bigger. So the land, the people, the kingdom, the priesthood, whatever it was, all pointing forward to something bigger and better in Jesus. So according to covenant theology, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. What we see in the New Testament may be called true Israel, the Israel of God. And this is important for understanding this difference between the two views. Um, Dispensationalists would argue that the church age, the Gentile age, and and they use this word, you can look it up. Uh, Dispensationalists will argue that the church age is a parenthesis. It's a parenthesis in God's plan. That he has this plan with his one people, Israel, and we have this parenthesis with this other people, the church. And at the end of that parenthesis, when we close it out at the rapture, there will be a return to his work with Israel. Covenant theology says, no, there's no parentheses in God's plan. There is one plan and one people. And so whatever Israel was, it was pointing forward to something greater, i.e. the church. And Galatians 6.16 is just the reference because Paul talks about the Israel of God. The Israel of God. And if you just, just go do a study of Galatians, it's full of this kind of language. Abraham, um, Israel, the church, and we'll talk about one of those in a minute. According to covenant theology, God only has one people, regardless of ethnicity. And we're going to come back to those references in just a moment. All of the promises then, without exception, without exception, are fulfilled not just by, dispensationalists would agree by or through, But all the promises, according to covenant theology, without exception, the land, the people, the temple, everything, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. So the question would be, does it matter? Maybe you're listening, you think, I don't know why this matters. This sounds a bunch of gobbledygook to me, but it does, it does matter. And, and we have to say this, you know, whether we're talking about tongues and prophecy or predestination and free will, these are all disagreements that we can have amongst ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. These are family disagreements. But all of them, including this one, do raise some issues, on how we read the Bible and how we interpret some things. So one of the things it brings up is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy way of saying how you read and interpret the Bible. And how you read and interpret the Bible, especially the promises and entire books like the prophets, how you read and interpret those things will be influenced by how you view this. So when the prophets, Micah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when they promise that the people will have their land and there will be a temple and a restored, pure priesthood, if you're a dispensationalist, you're reading a physical land, a rebuilt temple, actual priests in the temple serving. If you're a covenant theologian, you're reading those things and you see something else. 
the temple as it is fulfilled in the church, uh, giving a sacrifice of praise, the, the priesthood of believers, Jesus as our great high priest. So you see how it affects how you read and interpret entire books like the prophets themselves. Another thing it touches on is eschatology, what we talked about last time. Eschatology is just the, the doctrine of the last things. It includes death, heaven and hell, but it also includes the end times. And you can see how this view affects how you see the end times, whether it's a pre-tribulational rapture or a post-tribulational rapture, how you interpret the millennium, what's going on in the millennium. Is this God's return to his work with Israel, or is this just the culmination of all things in Christ? It affects how you view those things. Here's an important one, I think, current events. How we understand the modern nation of Israel and the role of the Jews in God's plan. If you're a dispensationalist, you see 1948 as something pretty spectacular, and maybe even supernatural, that God single-handedly brings the nation of Israel out of nowhere and begins to kind of complete and fulfill these literal promises. If you're covenant theology, you say, yeah, that's interesting, but this nation of Israel that the UN you know, drew with a marker on a map it has nothing to do with God's plan because God's plan is fulfilled in Christ and the church. This is interesting and worth noting, but it is not some end times unfolding of God's plan for Israel. So you see how even the, the way you view the news, you know, when Trump moved the, the capital of Israel, however he did that, from, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it was a big deal for a lot of American evangelicals for this reason. Well, there's, there's some fulfillment of God's plan, some fulfillment of prophecy that we're moving the capital, at least in, on paper, to, to Jerusalem. Um, and, and so a lot of the ways we interpret the news, whether it's Russia invading Ukraine or China and doing their thing with Taiwan, we begin to interpret the Bible and prophecy and end times events through this lens and these modern nations and modern states. And so it, it has to do with that, too. The last thing I think it touches on is ecclesiology, and that's just the doctrine of the church. How do we understand the church, its role, its identity, and its place in God's plan? Is it a parenthesis before God goes back to work with Israel, or is it the thing? Is, is it the one people of God? So, as I've done to this point, I'm just going to talk about some things that make me think. And I hope, I was talking to Matt, or Zane, one of them, today in the office. I said, you know, of all the ones I've taught, there, there's two, two of the four that I'm pretty decided on. And I'll let you guess which ones those are. And then there's two of the four that I'm, you know, somewhere else. This is one of the ones I'm kind of decided on. And um, I, I know that's going to come through. So if you disagree, I hope you'll forgive me. And uh, we, can move, we can move forward together as brothers and sisters in Christ. When it comes to the question of people, the people of God, is there one people or are there two peoples? Uh, something that makes me think, like I just said, it's interesting, it's worth noting, is the reformation of the nation of Israel in 1948. I mean, if, there, if there's a really compelling case for dispensationalism, and that God still has this kind of end times plan for this ethnic racial people, the Jews, that's a big deal. 
And it does make me stop and think. 1948, the reformation of the people of Israel. After all they've been through and all they've suffered as a people, that they still have this nation and this land, it does kind of make me stop and think, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. On the other hand, what makes me stop and think is the centrality and the preciousness of the church. And we come to the New Testament. The New Testament does not seem to present the church to us as a parenthesis, in my opinion. It doesn't present the church as like a plan B or a side note. It, it presents the church, in my opinion, as the center of everything through the person and work of Christ. This, this is the people that he has purchased with his own blood, whether they're Jew or Greek, whether they're Hebrews or Gentiles. Does it matter? Are Israel and the Jews included in this? Yes, if they have faith in Christ. Are Gentiles included in this too? Yes, through faith in Christ. Here's some word studies. You can write this down. I, I didn't put anything on the PowerPoint, so just excuse me. The Hebrew word kahal, Q-A-H-A-L, kahal, is the word assembly. And when you look in the Old Testament and you see the congregation, the assembly, the gathering, Whatever the word is, it's, it's usually some form of this word, kahal, which, which just means the assembly. When you come to the New Testament, when you see the English word church, it's the Greek word, ekklesia, which just means the assembly. In fact, when the Greek translators went back and translated the Old Testament into Greek, in what we call the Septuagint, when they came across that word, kahal, they just use the Greek word ekklesia. So if you're reading the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and you start reading the Greek New Testament, you're going to see the exact same word used for Israel and the church, the congregation, the gathering, the assembly. And uh, even the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 picks up on that language, the assembly of the firstborn gathered in heaven. Um, another two, two more important words, the word kadesh, comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which just means holy. Kadesh means holy ones. Now you might be more familiar with the word saints. When you look at the Old Testament saints, you see the holy ones, the kadesh of God. Come into the New Testament. What do you see the church called? The saints. The household of the saints. The Greek word is hagios. Hagios just means holy, but when it stands by itself, it can mean the holy ones, hagioi, the holy ones. Um, so it's interesting that across the Testaments, you see the assembly and you see the saints. And though in our English translations, we might have different words, if we were to look at those original languages, it's really one word across the board, the assembly of the saints, the holy ones of God. I don't have time to unpack every scripture, so just write this down. In Exodus 6, 7, it was God's promise to the people of Israel. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Another place he repeats that is Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 22. And it's replete throughout the Old Testament. These are just some versions. But there's no more precious promise to the people of Israel than that. You are my people, and I am your God. So when we come to Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, and God is issuing this judgment on the people of Israel, and he says, in this judgment, 
you will not be my people, and I will not be your God. How hard that, that judgment would have cut to their heart because of what they held to. We are God's people, and He is our God. It's interesting then, I think, that in 1 Peter chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, I want you to listen to how Peter refers to the church. This, this is the Apostle Peter in the New Testament church writing to New Testament Christians, most of whom, according to scholars, at least Peter's audience, most of whom were Gentiles, not Jews, not Hebrews. Listen to how Peter refers to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter is intentionally using language that God used of Israel. He's intentionally using language from the prophet Hosea. And he says, this is you believers. This is you, church. This isn't, this isn't some other group. This is you. You are the chosen race. You are the holy priesthood. You are God's people through faith in Christ, not because of your birth or your nationality or any other external thing, but because of your faith in Christ. So the question remains, I guess, uh, what about Israel? What, what about national Israel? Well, just very briefly, Romans chapter 9, we need to be reminded of who Israel is. When the Bible uses the word Israel, what does it mean? What does Paul mean? What does Jesus, what does the, the authors mean? Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Now, remember, Paul, Paul's question in Romans 9 is, well, if the Jews are God's chosen people, Paul, why don't they believe in God's Messiah? Did God fail? And Paul says, by no means. This is how this works out, according to Paul. Romans 9, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed when he made these promises to Israel. They didn't fail. Hear what Paul says now. For not all who are descended from Israel, Jacob. I mean, get this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham simply because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And you might just note Galatians 3, 28 through 29 in relation to that. Who are the offspring then? What does he mean? If it's not Israel who's really Israel, if it's not the physical offspring of Abraham that's really the offspring of Abraham, then who is it? Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29, Paul says, We are the children of Abraham through faith in Christ. We are the children of Abraham not because of our birthplace or our race or ethnicity, but because we belong to Jesus. We are the offspring. We're the people. We have the promises of God. 
Um, one closing thing, and this is my closing thought. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to find the verse I want to read, and we'll close with this. Paul's dealing with the same argument. So what about Israel? What about God's promises to them? Are they not true? Did they not? Paul says in Romans 11, verse 19, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul paints the picture of Israel as this tree, this mighty tree that God planted, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. He pictures it as this tree whose branches have been cut off. What, what branches were cut off? The unbelieving ones. The ones he said in chapter 9 who are not true Israel because they didn't believe the promises of God. So who is, being, who is this that's being grafted in? Paul says, it's you Gentiles. You're being grafted onto this tree that God planted with Israel. Their promises are now your promises. Their covenants are now your covenants through faith in Christ. You're being grafted in. Here's the thing I want to leave you with tonight. Paul does not picture two trees. Paul does not picture two trees. He pictures one tree into whom we are being grafted as the children of God. I mean, if that was like you're in a courtroom and you've got to argue for this, you're going to rest your case, there's the case. There aren't two trees. There aren't two peoples. There's one person in Christ. The last place you might want to mark, and I'll just mention this in closing, is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I, I think Paul's pretty clear when he says that in Christ, God has made one new man in place of the two. There, there's no longer a separation between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, there's just one new man. Now, there's lots of caveats and trails that we could go off into, no matter which view you take. But um, it's important you know where you stand, I think. It's important that you know this is a secondary issue. This doesn't make you a Christian or not a Christian, regardless of what some might say. But it's important because this affects how we read the Bible. It affects how we approach current events. It, approaches, it, it, it affects how we view the gospel and, and the church itself. So I encourage you to think through these things. Uh, go look up those scriptures. You do not have to agree with me. I, it doesn't bother me if you disagree with me. In fact, I like a little bit of disagreement. So go search the scriptures for yourself. Study to see if these things are true, Paul said. And uh, come to your own conclusions with the Holy Spirit as your teacher, the Bible as your guide. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for uh, the church that you purchased with your own blood. And we thank you that uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus, you've made us a people, a kingdom of nation, and kingdom and nation of priests to you. The Bible says that we will reign with you forever and ever. And we thank you for the promises that we have in Christ. And, and no matter how we view those promises, and no matter how we view the nation of Israel and the church, no matter our differences on that, we, we are united in you. We are united in the gospel of Jesus that brings us all together as brothers and sisters in Christ and shows us these great and precious promises that we have in him. 
God, we love you. We thank you. Send us from this place with your, with your love, your mercy, your grace, and your peace. And help us to proclaim this kingdom and these promises to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.